Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your coach, Brian Buffini. Top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. We have an incredibly special guest for you today. He's retired Naval Captain Charles J. Plum. Decorated veteran Captain Plum flew 74 successful missions over Vietnam, and five days before he was supposed to return home, his plane was shot down, and he spent nearly six years in a Vietnamese prison of war camp. His story is incredible. It's recounted in the book, I'm No Hero. He's done keynote speeches all over North America and beyond. A truly inspirational, brilliant man and a great encouragement to us all. On a personal note, my wife Beverly was raised on an Air Force base and her dad brought her and her siblings to watch the prisoner of wars come home. And they, a lot of the times they would land in Scott Air Force Base right there in Illinois. And my wife will share that this was one of the most transformative times in her whole life. And it gave her this enormous compassion and empathy for people. And as she was sharing with me this morning, she often does these little surprises because she's lived this kind of extraordinary life in such a quiet way. But she actually saw Captain Plum come home from Vietnam with his comrades when they landed at Scott Air Force Base. So I am so excited to have Captain Plum on the show today. I'm so excited to expose you to a man who says he's not a hero, but if Captain Plum isn't a hero, I, I don't know who is. So, uh, Charlie Plum, I want to welcome you to the show. Brian, it's my pleasure and honor to be with you. I appreciate you and all your all your listeners. Thank you. Well, we're going to dive right in. I would love to get a little background on you. I've watched your TED Talks. I've read your books. Maybe we could get a little bit of your background story of where you grew up and what life was like growing up in the Plum household. Absolutely. I, I had a wonderful childhood. I was a rich kid. Um, didn't have any material wealth. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have running water or indoor toilets until I was seven years old. But we were we were rich in uh, family unity and love, and had a great childhood. My father, World War II era, uh, you know, the greatest generation, a disciplinarian. My mother was Mother Teresa. The years that I lived with my mother, I never ever heard her complain, never heard her gripe about another person, and she taught me a lot about forgiveness. So those two things, discipline and forgiveness, would serve me well in that prison camp. The little town I grew up in, uh, Lee Compton, Kansas, um, went to a little bit of grade school, played uh, sports with the other kids there. I, it was really a, basically a farm kid from Kansas. I'd never seen the ocean, never ridden in an airplane. I, at age 17, I was graduated from high school and needed I needed to get out of there and get an education, but my parents couldn't afford it to send me to college. So I d did the old shotgun uh, approach and sent my resume to everybody. Got an appointment to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Uh, I, I couldn't have been more surprised. I had no idea what they did in the Navy. <laughs> Other than there were no Navy ships in Kansas at the time. That's right. No, we didn't. didn't <laughs> I'd always, you know, seen airplanes flying over Kansas and often wondered if I'd ever be able to ride in an airplane. I'd like to tell you that I, that I had great ambitions and goals setting and all this stuff, but it was, you know, my life is sort of by accident. <laughs> the Naval Academy, I, 
you know, learn to tie knots in the Morse code, drive the ships around the Chesapeake Bay. And, and, uh, and when I graduated, I, I got an assignment to flight training. So I married my high school sweetheart and, uh, we set sail for Pensacola, Florida, Beeville, Texas, Reading, Mississippi, and out to San Diego, California, where I helped start, helped, helped start the top gun school out there. And, uh, just having a great old time flying these supersonic jet airplanes. And uh, until the 19th of May, 1967, I was shot down. I'm in San Diego. Those same jets are flying out of Miramar. You know, they're cruising over the top. Everyone on the golf course, you know, golfers are finicky. We don't like any kind of noise or whatever else. But it's like this mantra when, when those jets fly over in formation and everybody goes, the sounds of freedom. Everybody says the same thing. So as you got here to San Diego, you're progressing along. You're in flight school. You're obviously becoming an accomplished pilot. Talk to me about what it was like to go into combat for the first time. Well, uh, we'd been very well trained. You know, I had two years of training uh, in those airplanes, and uh, and I felt pretty confident in going into combat. Uh, it was, it was it, I was flying the F four Phantom, which at the time was the you know a Mach two airplane. Uh, we could go fourteen hundred miles an hour, and uh, and felt like I was bulletproof. Um, so. You know, I, I obviously, you know, the adrenaline was flowing. Well, just, just to launch off an aircraft carrier, you know, and, and then recover um, this big airplane, this fast airplane, you're trying to land on a, a little 300-foot runway. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so that in and of itself w- was exciting. But going into combat, uh, felt, I felt like I was pretty prepared. I was 24 years old. You know, I... I we had a pretty good career going in the Navy uh, and flying the hottest airplane in the world. And I, uh, I couldn't have been prouder. And you talk about very well trained. I want to talk about that for a second before I get into the combat side of things again. You, you said you felt very confident. At the end of the day, the training is really where the confidence comes from. One of the things we see in a lot of our culture today is a lot of people who are not only a lot of anxiety, but a lot of insecurity. And one of the things I keep challenging them on is, you know, we're going to get into discipline and forgiveness in a minute, but the discipline of the training and becoming better at what you do and better at your craft, better at life and getting that training. I think that's something that I've seen. So talk to me about the very first time you went into combat and what was that like? Well, the first time, in, uh, it, you know, was, was really pretty easy. I was being shot at, but not hit. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're shot at and not hit, that actually improves your confidence, you know, to think, well, maybe they don't have a gun big enough to shoot down Charlie Plum. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had, a, 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 you know, a couple of hassles with the, with MiGs, the enemy airplanes, and um, I, we run a, a target uh, just south of the China border, as a matter of fact, Cap Airfield. And a big, it was a big, big time uh, deal, and about 20 miles before we got the the target, I got uh, hit uh, by a 57 millimeter anti-aircraft artillery shell. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't know what it was at the time. All I knew was that my starboard engine uh, caught fire and I started losing fuel. And um, my, I, I was on the wing of my commanding officer. Uh, the skipper said, uh, um, you only got a, a one engine now and one of, the, of your missiles on fire, you know, go back to the ship. So I turned around and headed for the ship on a single engine, uh, leaking fuel. And uh, my my back seer, my radar intercept officer, said, "Take a look at two o'clock high. You got three MIGs coming in on you." <laughs> I'm 
I am dogfighting with these three MIGs. Uh, and now this sounds impossible, and it may just be a bad memory of mine, but I distinctly remember being so low that I was looking up at the insulators on telegraph poles. <laughs> well, you know, this airplane is 52 feet wide. I don't know how it's that low, but anyway. So um, I, these uh, these three MIGs shot everything they had at me, and I was, was fortunate enough. Actually, my, my back seater, you know, saved our tail that day because we, we, these airplanes are so fast, you know, they're built so you don't need to look behind you. Right. Well, uh, and from the from the cockpit, from the front cockpit of an F-4 Phantom, you know, your your visibility is like from about uh, about nine o'clock to three o'clock, right. you know, on on, on, a, on a clock scale. <laughs> and uh, and so my back seater had totally unstrapped. Uh, you're strapped in that ejection seat at six points. He was totally unstrapped. He was kneeling up in his seat, looking out, looking out the back of the airplane, and calling these MIGs because. I had these guys cornered on my six o'clock position, <laughs> and, and 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 he would tell me when they shot their missiles. These are heat-seeking missiles, and he would say they're called atolls. And he said, "Okay, an atoll away." And uh, and and what I would do, I'd shut down my good engine, okay, and, and deny that heat source, and so the missile would just go ballistic. <laughs> now you not. Now you got your next problem. You know, you got this 35,000-pound airplane going down like a brick. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, then I crank the engine back up and pull out of the weeds and up to fight again. That happened six times. Wow. These these three MIG shot two missiles apiece at me, and I survived. Wow. So. You know, Charlie, sometimes I have trouble parallel parking my car. <laughs> when I hear this stuff, it just sounds, it sounds otherworldly. I'll be candid with you, talking to you right now reminds me when I interviewed Captain Jim Lovell and he was talking about a, Apollo 13. It was a very similar type dynamic. And they're like, yeah, well, we didn't. We thought we had about a 50-50 chance of coming home and we just kind of, we just did our job and relied on our training. And it's like, wow, it, that, that is the good stuff. And what number mission was that? Well, that was uh, about a month before I was shot down. I made it back to the aircraft carrier on a single engine. Wow. In fact, that was kind of funny. Because I was I was losing fuel, uh, I didn't have enough gas to uh, to get back to the ship. They sent an airborne tanker out to me, and I plugged in to the tanker and took on another three thousand pounds of fuel, and then landed on the aircraft carrier. And when I, I was I, obviously I was really really happy to be back safe and sound when I trapped on the aircraft carrier, and all these sailors were yelling at me and throwing rags and mops and everything because I I was spilling fuel all over the deck of this aircraft carrier. <laughs> Welcome home. By the way, you made a mess. I, you know, sometimes that happens to me when I come home. You know what I mean? You flew 74 successful missions. You're five days away from coming home. Tell us what happened a month later on that 75th mission. Well, it was a, another big airstrike uh, close to Hanoi. At the time, Hanoi was the most heavily defended city in the world, was Hanoi, North Vietnam. And we were flying right into it. and. Uh, the, <laughs> this F-4 Phantom I'm, I'm telling you about was was designed and built for the Cold War, okay? And we were to fly at high al uh, high altitude. In fact, I trained in an astronaut suit so I could go above 50,000 feet, shoot down the Russian bears. Huh. Well, and so it thought that we were so fast and so high that we'd never 
need an indicator to tell us when a SAM missile was locked onto us, okay? And so when the guys came back from, from their cruise and I joined them and asked them, hey, what do I need? They said, well, go down to Radio Shack, buy yourself a fuzzbuster. No. Because, uh, yeah, because the, uh, because the uh, frequencies of the Russian-built uh, surface-to-air missiles are the same as the California Highway Patrol. Wow. <laughs> so, no so here I am. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, I got this little fuzz, but, you know, a suction, suction cup, I lick it and stick it on my windscreen. No Run way. a little white, little white wire down under my G-suit and the torso harness, under my oxygen mask, into my ear. I got, you know, I got a $40 million airplane being protected by a $29 fuzz buster. <laughs> yeah, but you're not trying to, you're not trying to avoid a ticket, right? You're trying to avoid the big ticket. Yeah, that's right. So the problem, the problem was there was no directional uh, indicator. Mm. It, it only told me when, uh, when the radar was sweeping and when it was locked on. And so that day, that close to that city, uh, they, they were missiles all over the sky. And so I jinked this way and jinked that way, and I didn't even see the one that came up my tail mm. and, uh, and blew us out of the sky. Mm. So I ejected, my co-pilot ejected, uh, and our parachutes opened, and we came floating down uh, over enemy territory. And you're heading for the ground. You know, okay, I'm alive, but you know you're heading into something bad, right? You know you're close to Hanoi. You've heard stories, I'm sure, of other pilots, and now you know something is coming. You know that nothing pleasant is waiting for you when you land on the ground. It's a fact. And, um, you know, I'm trying to keep my cool. I took a deep breath, let about half of it out, try to calm myself and be extremely perceptive to everything around me, what was going on. I bowed my head and said a prayer for my new bride and uh, hoping that she would understand this because I wasn't coming home for a while. And as I'm descending, they're shooting at me uh, with rifles and pistols. And I thought that was really unfair. <laughs> you know, they just knocked down my multi-gazillion-dollar airplane. I was trying to kill the pilot. <laughs> I found out that when you're dodging bullets, it's tough to come up with a long-range plan. <laughs> yeah, right. No goals at that stage, right? Stay alive. Yep. So I uh, talk about waist deep in a rice paddy. And uh, they were right on top of me. First of all, just farmers, peasants uh, with with uh, axes and machetes, and uh, and so they. I had I had a, uh, a revolver, a thirty-eight caliber revolver, and uh, six shells in it. And decided I could probably take out six of those guys, but there were a hundred behind them, mm. and uh, so I uh, I surrendered. Um, not something the fighter pilot necessarily is trained to do. Right. So I was uh, pretty much out of my element at the time. They stripped me of everything I had. They, they, they took my flight gear, my clothing, my personal possessions, and, and and later they even took my name. They gave me a name from their language just to humiliate me for the next nearly six years. Tell us what it was like. I mean, you were a prisoner of war. The fortunate thing about being shot down near Hanoi was that I wasn't, dragged through the jungle for months as some of the guys were you know the guys were shot down uh in in the mountains or in laos or cambodia uh those guys a lot of them didn't make it to the formalized prison camp especially if they were injured but it was only a jeep ride they the military came and put me in a jeep and hauled me into 
the Wallow Prison Camp that we we that we the POWs designated as the Hanoi Hilton. Right. We had to keep our humor through all of that, and so uh, that was one of the things was Hanoi Hilton with room service. <laughs> so we got two bowls two bowls of rice a day, one about ten o'clock, one in the afternoon at two, and uh, of course in the, 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 the big. The big challenge, uh, I think, one of the big, not just the torture, I was tortured for two days and then tossed into this little eight-foot-by-eight-foot prison cell. And the challenge began uh, with just absolutely nothing to do. We were in jail cells. It wasn't like a, a World War II Hogan T. Rowe compound where you've got a volleyball and, a, you know, and you, you, you can uh, walk around and play games with the boys. We, some guys were in solitary confinement for four and a half years. Just in a prison cell, no books, no window to look out, no TV, telephone, nothing. Um, but, you know, your own mind. Would you ever leave the cell during the day? No. About every three or four days, they allowed you to come out of your cell and dump your bucket. You know, our our, our whole train was a, a two-gallon bucket. And, uh, and then... I mean, depending on the particular prison camp you were in, uh, you dumped it in a in a hole at the end of the cell block, so you you never saw the sunlight, you know, for years. Wow! So it was uh, it, it was it was you know pretty grim. But the good news is, when you have nothing else to think about, okay, three or four times a day you might hear a bird, you know, outside the cell, or maybe it'd be a thunderstorm, you know, something exciting happened to you. But but other than that, it was just total twenty four seven boredom. But the good news is when you have that opportunity to sit still for nearly six years, you go back through your mind and you learn an awful lot about yourself. You know, when we could communicate with the other prisoners with a, a secret code, we would tap on walls or tug on wires or squeeze and sneeze, any, anything we could do to communicate with the other guys. We started teaching each other uh, courses. In fact, when we came back, the University of Maryland gave us credit for the courses that we had learned from other POWs without PowerPoint, you know, you know, without uh, with overheads, no books, no professors. Uh, we learned from each other because what you what you find is there's an awful lot in the back of your mind, and when you just lay back on your board bed, you know, for hours at a time and go back through. Every teacher you'd ever had, every book you'd ever read, every movie you'd ever seen, every girl you'd ever dated, you, you build up this, uh, you know, this autobiography in your mind of, uh, of, of all the things you've ever done. And so it was, uh, you know, it, it was a real uh, learning experience. And you get very creative, too. Of course, you know, we had no, we had no calendars, no uh, watches, no, nothing like that. And one time, during an air raid, uh, some wayward fighter pilot um, shot a hole in my roof. It was a, a corrugated tin roof, and the the shell bounced around in my in my prison cell, my little prison cell, for a while. <clears throat> it came to rest. I was under my board bed, and it came to rest right near me. And I made the mistake of reaching over to pick up this. Shell. Super hot. Burnt. Yeah, it was super hot. Uh, don't know why I didn't have that figured out. But but the good news was this hole in my roof, that in, and, and, and the prison cell was very dark, and the hole in the roof allowed a little beam of sunlight through. And so I had this little spot on my floor. 
Well, it automatically became uh, my clock because it you know it walked across the floor. It also became my calendar because as you know as the as the seasons changed, the azimuth of the sun changed, and so uh, and occasionally uh, if it was clear on a a moonlit night, a full moon, I could actually see a moon from there, which was really very interesting. Now, now I'd been a part of the astronaut program uh, at the early stages. You know, I'd, I'd taken physicals and tests and stuff. And um, at the time, all astronauts were fighter pilots. And so there were a bunch of guys in that prison camp that were really far ahead of me in the astronaut program. Well, we and we were the last people on Earth, I suppose, to know that we'd put a man on the moon in 1969. I found out six months later, reading a communist newspaper that touted their ability to send to send a, a rocket to the moon and gather samples and, and take pictures and blast it off and return to Earth. The last sentence in this article was. Unlike the Americans, we didn't have to put a man aboard to control the vehicle. Ah, (laughs) that's how you found out. That's how I found out. Wow. This is uh, six months after the fact. And that very night, there was a full moon, and I could look through my hole and see that moon. I mean, what what a a motivator that was, what an inspiration that was. I marched in Kennedy's inaugural parade at the Naval Academy, and then I came back three years later marching his, his funeral. And of course, you know, he had said early on, he said, we will put a man on the moon and bring him home safely in this decade. Yeah. And, uh, of course, at the time, we didn't have the technology to do it. And uh, so, but a lot of us were inspired. And, uh, and, it, and, and then see that happen in 1969, before the end of that decade, it was really, uh, it, it, it was really inspiring. I would say you had perhaps the most unusual way of finding out a man had walked on the moon of anybody in the world, perhaps. We had the great privilege of having Neil Armstrong come to our event. He actually came out of retirement after 15 years. His first speaking engagement was at our event in 2003, I believe. It was one of the great experiences of my life. And like you said, you guys are all the same. It's this fighter pilot mentality. There's this great courage. There's great trainings, great commitment. There's a huge technical part of it. But there's also this spirit, I think, is something that inspires me and something I'm hoping for in this next iteration of what America becomes, just that can-do spirit of go get it. You know, I'm trying to get my head around it. I think about 2,103 days. And you said a couple things. One is you said you learned you learn a lot about yourself. And then number two, you, you use all of these mental processes to keep yourself entertained, educated, and so on and so forth. I, I would love to know what you learned about yourself over the course of 2,000 days. You know, I think the biggest thing I learned about myself was that regardless of what's around, what is around me, I still can make choices about my response to the things around me. And as I said, I, you know, I grew up, I had a great childhood and I had a great coach who told me one time that it's, that, um, it was after a, a losing season, a basketball game. And, uh, I'm like 14 years old and, and I'm, I'm wandering off from to the locker room, and he comes up from behind. This guy was a veteran, and uh, and I and I said, "Sorry, coach. I guess this team's just a bunch of losers." And he squeezed my shoulder, and he sunk his fingers fingers into the into the flesh, and <laughs> and he said something I shall never forget. He said, "Son, whether you think you're a loser or whether you think you're a winner, you're right." 
And, uh, and he said, you'll always have a choice regardless of how bad things get. You will always have a choice and don't give up the choice. Mm. He said, you, you give up, you give up your choice by blaming other people for your problems and feeling sorry for yourself. And, and you go into this pity party and, uh, and, and, and what happens is you, you restrict all of the choices you might have just by your attitude. So, uh, so that was probably the first thing I learned about myself was, was just the fact that, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I still have self-determination. I can still, uh, you know, make my way regardless. Huh. And then I think the second thing that I learned was that any adversity in life has some kind of an opportunity within that lots of times the biggest opportunities in life are wrapped up in the package that, uh, it looks like a big time problem, uh-huh. and uh, and and one of my mantras, and I and I say this from my my from the stage in my presentation, the keynote presentations, is this: adversity is a terrible thing, but waste. Mm-hmm. And and you waste adversity, you know, by first of all denying the reality of it. You go into the "woe is me" mode, and and then you start blaming other people for the problem. And, and when you do, you, you give them control of your life. Mm-hmm. So I'm still working on this. You yeah. know, I'm, I, I learned it, but I'm still working on it. You know, I still, you know, get behind a, a car on the highway and it cuts me off and I wave my fist and yell at it. And <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, you, you, you're on the speaking circuit. You've got to tell all these people that, you know, that they have the choice. Now you're, you're acting like this. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, those things and many, many more are the things that you learn when you sit still for a while. You must have had daily routines. I, I read the book, and maybe you could touch on that a little bit, because 24 hours a day, seven days a week, coming out every three days to empty your latrine bucket, uh, doing that for six years. I mean, I'll be candid with you. I would say the average person doing that for six days would be close to losing their marbles. And And again, I know how deep you went in the book, but Ultimately, what did you do? What were the daily routines that you leaned into to, to kind of keep yourself going? Interesting that you would bring that up. A good friend of mine just wrote a book. In fact, it just came out last week. It's called The Art of Routine. Mm. And he interviewed me for a chapter in that book of the, you know, the, the value of, of having a routine. And it absolutely was. Now, you know, we didn't have a, a, a clock, uh, but that little spot on my floor would remind me of the things that I would do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, exercise is really important to us. And so first thing in the morning, you know, we'd get up and do push-ups and sit-ups and run in place. And in typical fighter pilot mantra, we would challenge each other for uh, the number of push-ups, sit-ups, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and we do that for about an hour actually, uh, in first thing in the morning. And then, uh, with the first meal would come now with two bowls of rice. And sometimes you have a little soup with a little, uh, broth with that. Uh, at near the end of the war, they started feeding us a lot better and we get some bread and, and even some meat. But those first, first several years, I didn't have enough meat to in a year to fill a coffee cup. Um, but then, uh, after the meal, the guards would usually take their siesta and we would start communicating with each other. And as I said, we had all kinds of ways to communicate. Um, it was, uh, it, it, it was amazing how creative we got with our communication. 
we found that, that most of the Vietnamese had tuberculosis and they were always coughing and spitting. Uh, and we decided, hey, we can get by with that too. So we can't actually whisper a word outside your cell, but you go around coughing and spitting and everybody could hear you. We designated a code where various letters of the alphabet would be represented by combinations of coughs, sneezes, spits, or wheezes. <laughs> so, so you get up in the morning, you know, hear the guys next door go, <laughs> that means good morning, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, wow. the, conversa- the, the, uh, the communication would end about uh, roughly two in, in the afternoon when the second meal came, and then the evening hmm. was filled uh, with showtime. If you had a roommate or two or three uh, roommates, a guy would tell about a movie that he had seen before he was shot down. And, uh, and it, 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 it got very elaborate. You know, the, the, the first time, in fact, uh, Chuck Zuhowski was a great movie teller. And he, I think the guy had a photographic memory, because, but the, the first time he told Dr. Zhivago, it was about a 15 minute movie, but I was with him about five years later. And the movie was now, uh, like three hours, and the the rating has gone from PG to X. <laughs> <laughs> He'd expanded on the story and gotten better at telling it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's wild. So, yeah, that's great. I look forward to reading The Art of Routine. Who wrote that, by the way? Uh, Dr. I, his name is Angel Iskovich. He's a medical doctor uh, and a good one. And his his point is that a lot of ills, in our lives are caused because we get out of this bubble. You know, we, um, and, and when we break the routine, then our body uh, starts to break down. So it really is an interesting book. So six years, you're in the eight by eight, the cell, the, the prison between your ears. That's really the one that you worked on the most. And I think there's a lot of people in the marketplace today that are struggling. They have total freedom and yet they're in a prison in their mind. Maybe you could talk to that for a few minutes. Sure. Uh, no, that's one of the one of the first things that I, I figured out. Because, I don't know, probably two or three months, and I was really angry. You know, I mean, I was I was mad, obviously, at the guards uh, that tortured me. I was I was mad at the president for starting this political war. I was mad at the air, the, the mechanics that put the airplane together. And, and I found one of the first guys I communicated with was passing along poetry and patriotic quotes and Bible verses. And one of the quotes that he passed me, which really turned me around, was this one. Acid does more harm in the vessel it's stored than on the subject it's poured. Mm. What that meant to me was, I can harbor all of this hate and discontent and acid, all this vitriol within my body, and it's not hurting the enemy. In fact, they're pretty happy about it. Uh, and so, uh, I, I need to, I need to get rid of this. You know, I need to forgive, uh, as my mother had taught me. And so about three months into it, uh, I, I, I learned that, uh, that the prison was not the eight feet between the walls. It was the eight inches between my ears. Mm. I, I was in this mental box, uh, you know, feeling sorry for myself and this pity party was me. I'm a plums little boy, Charlie, long way from home. Uh, and uh, I would talk to myself, hey, <laughs> uh, grab your big boy pants, you know, pull them up, man. Let's, let's get on with this war. <laughs> so, 
Now, the other part of that also was that it was really great to have good leadership in that prison camp. You know, uh, they turned it around for me. The, the uh, you know, Jim Stockdale and Jeremiah Denton and John McCain. John was my, John is my flight instructor, as a matter of fact, and he was shot down just five months after I was. And, uh, and these guys turned the whole thing around. Uh, in fact, uh, Stockdale sent the message down, we are not on the defensive. We are warriors, and we will pursue this war till our last dying breath. Wow. Now, I'm, I'm a 24-year-old lieutenant junior grade in the military, and I'm looking at the four walls of this little eight-foot by eight-foot cell, and and you know the rats and the the bugs and the and, and the mosquitoes and all the stuff that's surrounding me, and I'm thinking, hey, mate, wait a minute, I'm not on the defensive. Uh, commander. <laughs> yeah, he was something. I actually met him. He lived in Coronado, Admiral Stockdale. I saw the house on his street, and he would come by every time I was holding an open house. He would come by, and man, it was like I would forget about the fact that I was trying to sell a house. He would start in on his stories, and he was a remarkable, remarkable human being. I that doesn't surprise me at all that he got you guys on the offense. It was amazing, and I've been I've been to that house. As a matter of fact, I've had dinner uh, with the admiral and his boys, mm. and I, in fact, I still communicate with this. But, but you're right. You know what a wonderful guy he was, and um, it was it, that it was that kind of leadership I think that turned it around. And you know, now here's a statistic for you that that people will have trouble believing. Uh, a study was done five years ago of all the people, uh, of all the combatants, anyone exposed to the Vietnam War, thirty point six percent had post traumatic stress disorder (PTSD). Of the prisoners of war, four percent of us have PTSD, and it's mostly the guys that were shot down near the end of the war and were only prisoners for a few weeks or a month or two. And the psychiatrists and psychologists, the people that know a whole lot more about this than I do, believe that it was primarily because of the leadership we had in turning this whole thing around and the team that we put together with that leadership and the cohesiveness of those guys in that prison camp. That's amazing. That's a lesson for us all, you know, and also all this reflection and all these routines and all this stuff you guys did every single day. You were living your life even though you had everything that makes life good taken away from you. You know, you continued on, actually, which was kind of remarkable to me. You know, if I spent six years in the POW camp, I mean, the last thing I do is to stay on in the Navy, but you stayed on for a total of 31 years. That's it's kind of remarkable. What, what made you do that? Well, first of all, uh, when I came home, I found that that high school sweetheart I had married at the, the day after the Naval Academy uh, had filed for divorce mm. just three months before I came home. And, you know, I, I had uh, pretty much uh, lived my life planning to be back with her and mm. planning our life together. Mm. And so I was kind of, you know, I was kind of hung out to dry when I came home. And I felt like that I you know, needed some stability. I needed something in my life. Um, the Navy had taken pretty good care of me, had trained me, had had an education through the Navy, and I, I still need to give back and serve my country. So, and, and of course, I love to fly airplanes. You know, uh, that that gets in your blood and doesn't go away. And they were letting me fly some pretty nice airplanes. <laughs> so, so I uh, I stayed in the Navy, continued to fly. Uh, I flew A um, fours and A seven, finally F eighteen, mm. uh, the ones the Blue Angels flying out. Right. Uh, so. So I've, I've had, you know, I just had a, a great time in the Navy. 
But, and, you know, just as you said, my first thought when I came home was, I'm not going to tell anybody about this. Mm. You know, this is a, uh, this is really a boring story of a guy that spent nearly six years in a little prison cell, you know. Uh, and then a guy, a guy told me to write a book. Well, I, I, I was so hounded by so many questions by so many people. I thought, well, I'll write a book. And when they start asking me questions about this, I'll hand them the book. Right. Well, I wrote, I wrote the book. I'm no hero. Uh, and <laughs> it didn't work. You know, the, the more people read the book, the more questions they had, the more they wanted me to come to speak at their meeting. And, and, and then I found th- th- this connection, you know, between what I had been through and what people go through in everyday life. Right. My, you know, my premise is that you can, you can be in just as much of a prison, you know, uh, going through a divorce or losing your job or being diagnosed with cancer. You know, uh, you, you, you go into that little eight inch prison. Uh, and, and so maybe I can tell folks uh, how, how you get out of that. And so that's what I do in my, in my keynote speeches around the country and the world is, is to, you know, talk to folks about resilience. You know, and, and, and how you turn lemons into lemonade and how you do that. And, uh, and it seems to connect. And you've done it well, by the way. You've done it well. And one of the stories I've heard you tell as we get ready to go into our final questions here is, you know, this is sometimes I think like that bullet hitting in your cell and giving you a little ray of hope. I mean, for me, I view that as God's providence. A little kiss from above to go, hey, I still got you. You actually got a chance to meet at a Kansas City restaurant, the man who packed your parachute. But maybe you could just share that story as we get ready to close here. It was beyond ridiculous. In fact, when it happened, it was just, you know, one of those aha moments that you, you don't come by. It was in Maggie Jones Restaurant in uh, at the landing in Kansas City, where I lived at the time. And uh, we were going to the Starlight Theater uh, there, and but having dinner beforehand. The guy about two tables over kept looking at me, and I caught his eye, but I didn't recognize this gent. He stood up, walked over to our table, pointed at me with kind of a serious look on his face. He said, you're Captain Plum, aren't you? Uh, I looked up, and I said, "Uh, yes, sir, I'm Captain Plum. (laughs) He said, you flew jet fighters in Vietnam. You're a fighter pilot, part of that top gun outfit, uh, shot down, parachuted in enemy hands. You spent nearly six years as a prisoner of war. I said, how in the world did you, did you know that? And he finally broke into a smile. And he said, because I packed your parachute. Well, I, I was, spe- I was for, a, you know, for a motivational speaker, I was speechless. <laughs> Staggered to my feet, reached out a very grateful hand of thanks. He, he was the one who spoke. He came up with just the right words. Mm. <laughs> he, he grabbed my hand, pumped my arm, and he said, I guess it worked. <laughs> How crazy is that? How crazy is that? I could talk to you all day. I could listen to you all day. But I have five rapid-fire questions, Charlie, that I ask everyone who's been on this, from sports stars to politicians to business leaders. And we kind of do this rapid-fire thing. No one really knows the questions. And I want to kind of throw a few at you here. So, number one, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, probably the superintendent of the Naval Academy who would stand up in front of the pep rallies before the football games. And he would say, you guys can do anything you set your minds to do. And he was right. Apparently that's true. You spent six years proving it. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? I'd like to be able to play the guitar better. (laughs) 
Everybody, it's music. Isn't it funny? We all roll our eyes at our mother when they wanted us to learn a musical instrument. And uh, those that persevered are the, are the fortunate ones. What book has been most instrumental in your life, uh, Charlie? Probably the Bible. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a believer, and I believe that uh, you know if you look to the Bible for answers, you'll find them. Who's your favorite character in the Bible? Job. Oh, no, you're kidding me. <laughs> I have a statue of Job in the front of my house. Are you kidding I had a house, I had a fire burn everything to the ground. We had a house fire in 2007 and every single thing in the property, the sidewalks, everything, things exploded, everything was gone. And the only thing that was left standing was this statue of Job, basically been honed a little bit more in fire, but completely self-standing. Now I ask everybody this question, what's the one movie you watch over and over again? Probably Dr. Zhivago, I'm guessing, after to see to see if it lived up to the X-rated billing. But what's the one movie that uh, you watch over and over again? Uh, probably Top Gun is one I've seen more than anything. There you go. Well, you're going to get a chance to see a new one here very soon. It was filmed right here yeah, in San Diego, yeah. and they've been holding off releasing it since the pandemic. But that would be great. A last question I have for you, kind of a new question we're introducing here to our audience is we're really focusing on the good life. And what does the good life mean to you? Uh, I think the good life, uh, to me, means uh, a life of service. I'm, I'm, I'm of the belief that if you help enough people get what they want, you can have a very, a very successful life. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, I, I think that works monetarily as well, I think, in business. I, 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 and so I, I try my best uh, to be... Um, to be a, a servant leader in, in, in all that I do uh, and put more emphasis on the people uh, than the process or the product. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can do that, you know, I think you live a good life. Amen. Amen and amen. Well said, well done, a life well lived. Captain Charles Plum, you've been influencing people for a long time. You've been inspiring people for a long time with your books and your talks and your message. And so it's been such a great privilege to have you on the show today. And I know that so many people are going to be inspired to maybe get out of that eight inch prison cell between all of our ears, to break out into proper routines, to keep our choices alive and to make decisions where we can see adversity as an opportunity, get off the pity pot and go pursue the good life. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real privilege. Brian, thank you for helping me tell my story. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate what you do in all these sessions and the, and the people that you affect. You're touching a lot of people. You're packing a lot of parachutes. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for that. That's a real blessing. Well, someone who's packed my parachute uh, since the day I was born is my great inspiration, my mom. And she's going to leave us all with a little Irish blessing today as we close the show. So over to you, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.